0: Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. I was looking at the, at the children collecting the, the lamb's offering this morning, and uh, what I noticed is that we have more children than last year, so I guess we need to bring more bills so all the kids can have opportunity to collect. That, that's such a blessing, such a blessing to see you here today also, because today we begin a new series that we call Do Over. Do Over. And uh, if we look back to last year, we probably can think of a moment, of a decision, of an action, of words that were said, things that were done, that we can pause for a second and say, I need a do-over. So this series is for all of us who find ourselves in that particular place. Probably you remember when uh, the movie, The Ten Commandments, came out. Well, some of you. But some of you might remember Charlton Heston as, as, as Moses. And this Moses, I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, when I, when I saw this movie for the first time, of course not when it first came out. I, I remember looking at the actor and I remember this Moses, because that was the only image of Moses that I had, other than what I had learned from the Bible story. And this Moses was a Moses that was strong, a Moses that was present, a Moses that was there at the right time. And who can forget the line, let my people go. That was a really cool Moses. But if you were born later, if you remember the other Moses. From the prince of Egypt. Now this is a different kind of Moses. Moses looks the same when he was a teenager that when he was 80. This Moses did not age. And who wouldn't like to drink some of that water? Now that I'm turning 35, uh, uh, you know, I feel like I need to, to look young still. Whatever Moses identified the Bible story with, they do have some things in common. At least they got the name right. They got the country right. And some of the facts, some of the moments in the movies were right. But they missed one thing. They missed reality. Reality. And you know what they say when you watch a movie, especially when the movie was based on a book. The book is always better than the movie. So for this next series, we'll look at the book. At the book that provides the most accurate depiction, the most accurate representation of Moses. Because Moses, out of all men in the Bible, he truly needed a do-over. And to understand the story, we got to look at the Bible and the book of Genesis. Genesis. Book of Genesis. And and, and if you don't have your bulletin, you can can follow uh, in your Bible, of course. And uh, if you have the bulletin, the notes are there on one of the sides. And let's go to chapter 47 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 47. But but we need to look at the story, uh, at the family of Moses, because it's so important. Moses... Comes from the family of Abraham. If you remember, Abraham was the man whose family, who did not have, he didn't have children, was promised by God. And God promised Abraham, a father of nations, that's what his name means, to have children when he was already in his later years. Abraham had two children, two sons. Ishmael, who was an illegitimate son because he was with a woman who was not his wife. And one of these days we'll get into that story. But we jump to the next son, to the second son. Because the second son, his name is Isaac. And Isaac is the son of the promise. Now Isaac had two sons. Esau. And Jacob. We discover that out of those two sons, only Jacob, crazy thing, his name means the liar, the imposter, the cheater. Can you imagine that? Going to school and the teacher taking role. Cheater, are you here? Liar. Did you learn your memory verse? But Jacob later, his name is changed into Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. Now the story is taking shape. Because out of these 12 sons, one, one of them is named Joseph. Joseph, yes, is the one that had the tunic with many colors. Is the one that had the dreams. Is the one that, that, that when, uh, Pharaoh had the dreams about the, the cows and and, and and the wheat. He is the one that identifies that there's going to be a period of famine that would last how long? But it would follow a period of abundance that would last how long? Seven years. Let's fast forward to the moment of the abundance, to the years of abundance. Joseph is at the court of Pharaoh. Joseph is the second in command of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And remember, Joseph is the son of Israel. He's is the son of Jacob. He is from the family of Abraham. Now, to Abraham was given a promise. And the story of Abraham begins like this. Abraham left his city of Ur to go to a place that he did not know where it was going to be. Can you imagine that conversation with Sarah, his wife? Honey, we're moving. Where to? I don't know. But let's pack. We're on the road. And the Bible says that God promised Abraham a land for his family, for his nation of a family. By the time that Joseph and his brothers appear in the story, they are already in the promised land. But because of the famine that is hidden in the land, the only place, the only country that had food was Egypt where Joseph was. And you remember that the way that Joseph got to Egypt was because his brothers didn't like him and they sold him. So Joseph is in Egypt. He is the second in command. His family is hungry, and the only place that they could be to satisfy their needs is with him in Egypt. Because he has connections with Pharaoh. Let's look at verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Let's think about this for a second. They were not given to live in the ghetto. They were given to live in the best looking land. That was attractive, wasn't it? And not only that, they were given a job. Egypt in the Bible family it's a symbol of sin. And if we ponder on this text for a second sin is attractive. Sin is good looking. I mean let's be real if it wasn't like that nobody would sin. But that's the reality that sin is attractive it, it, it appears good it, it, it's fun. I think that sin is like diet on vacation. I, I've been telling you that, that we have becoming vegan. And uh, this holiday, the past holidays, we went on vacation and, uh, well, we were given the opportunity to cheat on our diet. Because we went on vacation. I mean, you know, it's difficult to eat on vacation. I mean, eat healthy. Because you go to a restaurant, you know, it smells good and... and, and Especially when you go to Texas, that's all you can do, eat. Just kidding. Good places, good places, good people. But but you go there, you go there, and, and, and you know, you sit at the restaurant, and it's fun. It, 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 it's thematic, you know, there's, there's music, and it's Tex-Mex, and colorful, and... Especially when you sit by the river walk in San Antonio, it's all the lights and colors and people and and live music and eating chips until there's no tomorrow. It it was fun. And it's also, you you know, we rationalize. Well, we're on vacation. This is not all the time, we think. I'm only going to do it while I'm here. Once we go back home, I, I will not eat like this anymore. But then you realize after a couple of days that, that eating like that becomes expensive. Especially when you have to feed five. After a few days, you realize that uh, you're going to have to pay for it later on. But in the long run, eating like that becomes un- unhealthy. And if you don't get back to your original diet, to your original habits, to your healthy habits, it could cost your life. I think that sin is just like that. It's fun at the beginning. You know, you rationalize it. Well, you know, everybody's doing it. My friends are doing it. I mean, it's only once. But then you get trapped. And we learn a lesson from this story. God's people were not intended to live in Egypt. Neither are we designed to live or to stay in sin. The consequences of it, sooner or later we catch up. Egypt was not intended to be the land of the family of Abraham. Egypt was not designed to be the promised land. But you know how long they stay there? 350 years! The famine was supposed to last only seven years, but they stayed there for 350. They got comfortable at a place that we're not supposed to be in. The plan was to endure the famine and then go back. But they stayed. It was beautiful. It was comfortable. They had jobs. the Bible tells us that after the 350 years, they came a, there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And now this Pharaoh is fearing. Fearing that all these new Hebrews that are being born are strong, are healthy. And that they will multiply in such a number that they could easily overturn the Egyptian army. The only thing about this is that when suspicion is created about a group of people, easily is turned into prejudice. And prejudice is just a step away from persecution. And persecution is just a s- stone throw away from genocide. In the time of the family of Israel, that became a reality. The Hebrews, the Hebrews were forced to make bricks. Exodus 1, 12, 13. And now we're getting into the Moses part of the story. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. What once was attractive, what once was looked at a blessing to be in Egypt, now it was a horrible situation. Now it was not what they thought it was going to be like. Now the staying in the place that were not intended to be turned into the worst nightmare that they could, had ever dreamt. Because that was not the place where God wanted them to be. Where they thought it was going to blessing, turn into a curse for the whole nation. And not just that, but it was also across generations. See, God did not intend the people of Israel to stay in Egypt. But unfortunately, family, past decisions always affect the next generation. How long was the famine supposed to last? you go. How long? Seven years. Now Israel had a chance. The whole family had a chance to go back. They had 350 years of chances. Because the problems did not begin until this new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph arrived. 350 years of chances. But see, when we forget our original destiny, we lose sight of the reality. And when we miss reality, we lose our destiny. We lose our direction. You know, the other day, uh, uh, um, my wife got me into this steps thing. Ha, ha, you know, the Fitbit thing? Paola is, is always walking, and she has her Fitbit, and, and then uh, I got one to compete against her. She always beats me. And now Giovanni has his, and he's becoming obsessed with his steps. And, and he goes, Dad, you know, how many steps do you have? You know, it's 7 in the morning. I, I don't know. I just got up, you know, <laughs> 2. How many steps? How many steps? And uh, uh, later in the day, how many steps? How many steps? And... I. Uh, uh, A drop of wisdom came to me the other day, and I told them, son, it doesn't matter how many steps you take if you don't know where you're going. 350 years, they had a chance to go back to the promised land, but they chose to stay. We could look back of how many times God is asking us to go back to the plan that He had for us, to the plan that we knew He had for us, to the idea, to the direction, to the goals, to the lifestyle, to the family choices, to the health choices, to the professional choices. But because of all the comfort or, or just being there without taking a step in the right direction, it is time that we need that we take advantage of the do-over. It says in Exodus one sixteen. Now the Pharaoh has, has, is afraid of the, of the Hebrews because they're just multiplying. They're becoming too strong, too many. And, and, and he realized that, that the labor, the, the, the slavery, the harsh treatment was not really working. So he said, we can't get them older. We have to get them when they're about to be born. So he called the midwives, the, the The nurses in the, the, what's the name of the newborn unit? I'm not a nurse, my wife is. Well, you know what I'm, neonatal, neonatal unit. And he says, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women, verse 16, Exodus 1, and see them on the birthstool, it is, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall let her her live. Now, this is what happened. Births were a little bit different back then. And now not the biology of it, the procedures. See, women didn't go to hospitals. They didn't have a bag ready for the moment where the contractions would begin. See, they were at home. And the midwives, the, the Egyptian midwives, when, when, they, when they knew that a, that a woman was about to give birth, they would come and guide her through the process. They knew what to do in moments of crisis when the, when the birth was complicated. But the instructions of Pharaoh were that if there were a boy, they would choke the baby. And then when the baby was born, if it would come out, they would say, well, you know what? I'm sorry, but your son, stillborn, didn't make it. Those were the instructions. But the Bible tells us that God worked in the heart of the midwives and, and they were not obeying Pharaoh. In fact, God bless them so much because they did that. So, so, so they said, well, the, 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 the Hebrew women are so strong that when we get there, the babies are already born. They're so good. Because see, not only past decisions affected next generation because all these babies from, from the Hebrew family were being killed or were supposed to die. Because if you think about it, that would mean the extinction of the Hebrews. But God uses the unlikely to do the unexpected. God used the midwives. But He even used a more unlikely person to help the family of Joseph. See, because of the edict of killing the, the boys who were two years of younger which is kind of familiar to a story in the New Testament that we just studied a few weeks ago. Remember the time of Jesus? And, and we'll get to that later, but between Moses and Jesus, there's so many parallels. So many. It's amazing. Now, Jochebed's, it's Moses. Jochebed is Moses' mother. And because Moses was born... The Bible tells us that she realized that Moses was a beautiful boy. I mean, what mother doesn't say that about her son? You know? We have three boys, and when they were born, we thought they were beautiful. I mean, they were the most beautiful we ever had. And and the Bible says that, that she protected Moses, but you know, there's something that is inevitable. That babies... Over time, they they grow. Yeah, they scream too, and the bigger they are, the louder they scream. Right? Especially when they scream at three in the morning when they're hungry. which is crazy. That was the moment when I said, "Paola, get up, fix, you know, help about." Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. I want to have lunch today. I want to have lunch today. So. Moses was getting bigger. He was he he was growing up, and and you know, uh, uh, as the kids, as especially boys, when they're they're so active when they're little, uh, there's only so much that you can do to hide them. Especially when when the windows had no glass, you can only go shh so many times before the baby goes shh. Nothing. I'm hungry. So, Jochebed devised a plan. Devised a plan to save Moses. And this plan required the help of one very unlikely individual. The plan required that the baby Moses would be put in a, into a basket. And this basket was to be located on the banks of the river, the Nile River, right between between the reeds. And the plan was designed, can't even talk today, designed for Pharaoh's daughter to see him in the basket. And you know, you know, my sisters, you know. You know what happens when you see a baby? Exactly. Oh. The plan was designed for Pharaoh's daughter to see the baby and go, Oh, Daddy, I want to keep him. And that is exactly what she did. She placed Moses in a basket between the reeds. In chapter 2 verse 9 says, And Pharaoh's daughter, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. And Pharaoh's daughter. See, oftentimes, and because we've seen the movie, we think that that Jochef said, okay, Moses, I'm going to put you in the basket. And uh, may God protect you. See you later. May everything go well. And, And we have an idea that Miriam was watching from afar, following Moses, going through the water, through the river, all the way To the place exactly where Pharaoh's daughter was going to be swimming. But see, it was not like that at all. Let me explain something to you this morning. And if this is the only thing you take out of this message, just pay attention to this. Oftentimes we fail in life and we need a do-over because we think that As long as I said, God, let it be your will. You do your job. May you perform a miracle. And we just let it go. We just act. Or we make decisions. And we just pray, God, over our choices. Over our decisions. May it be your will. Family, that is reckless. Because we expect that after our ill-informed decisions that God in His infinite mercy and grace, He will bail us out of our lack of wisdom. But see, that's not reality. That's not how it happens. That's not how God wants us to act. You see, the plan that Jochebed had was very different. The first thing she did is that she had observed. She had what? Observed the habits of Pharaoh's daughter. Since Moses was born, she began to plan a escape for Moses' life after he would turn two. And he began to observe the habits of Pharaoh's daughter. She knew at what time she was going to the river to swim and when. The basket where Moses was placed was not built from one day to the next. It was a plan devised for over two years. When the basket was placed in the reeds, and, and in notice the Bible says that it was placed in the reeds. Why? Because she knew exactly the location where, Moses, where Pharaoh's uh, daughter was going to be able to see the basket, hear the baby. She had observed. She had identified the place where it was going to be more logical for Moses to be found. But not just that. Miriam, the, da- the, 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 the sister of Moses, the daughter of Jochebed, had a part to play. You are going to be there, swimming in the river. Who's going to think anything of a girl? And when Pharaoh's daughter picks up the basket and goes, you're going to say, hey, if you need help, I know of a good babysitter. And then you come back, and you call me, and I go. Are you looking at what I'm looking? It was not a chance. It was not something left to the mercy of God. It was a plan a plan that was designed. And see, when we trust our plans to God only, you see what I said, our plans to God? We are going to fail. But when we ask for wisdom and we act following God's directions, He is going to use even the most unlikely to do His will. Now, notice, verse, let's go back to Exodus two nine. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, now she comes, it comes, now she's the recommended babysitter, comes with a resume on her, uh, Letters of recommendation. And she says, take the child. This is Pharaoh's daughter talking to Jochebed. Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. Not only is she going to be able to keep her son, but she's going to get paid for it. Because see, when we follow God's plans, God's directions in His grace, He's not only going to provide for what we want, but He's going to give us more than what we ever thought. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older... She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I threw him out of the water. We do understand now that this was not a reckless plan. This plan was God-led. But now there is a new situation. Moses is no longer a baby. Now he is an adolescent. He's probably a teenager. He no longer needs the care of a babysitter. Jochebit knew this, but she knew that the best chances for Moses to become the man that God wanted him to be was to follow the plan to his conclusion. Now Moses had to become the daughter, I mean the son of another woman. With a different religion, with a different culture, with different traditions. What was going to keep Moses on the path to God was the foundation left by his mother during his growing up years. There is no doubt that Moses learned about the God of Heaven. There is no doubt that Moses learned about the story of his family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He knew it so much that we have that story in the Bible because he wrote it down. So there's no doubt that all those stories he learned them from one person. From Jacob. Family, let me tell you something. When a baby is born, when a child is born, they do not come with a manual. And we have no tech support to call the manufacturer. But our job becomes even more difficult because the responsibility of us as parents is to teach our children how to make decisions when we are no longer with them. That's why it is so important that we give them a solid foundation. Because there's going to be a time... When they will make their own choices, and those choices are gonna be made based on the things that they've learned growing up and on the example that we have given them. Oh, also scary. But that is the fact. Moses reached that point where now he had a spiritual foundation taught by his mother based on the God of heaven. Now he is going to receive a different kind of education. Now he is going to receive military instruction. Now he's going to receive administration structure. Remember, he is the, grandda- the grandson of Pharaoh. He could have been a potential Pharaoh. Are you with me? So he needed to be instructed in those things. It would have been incredibly interesting if we had ever had a Pharaoh who prayed to the God of heaven. But that was not the plan. Because Egypt was not the promised land. But to lead the people out of Egypt, God needed a man who not only knew him, but knew the administrative ways and the structure and, and the organizational skills to take him out of Egypt. Because now it's not just a family anymore of 70 people as they came in at the time of Joseph. Some scholars believe that it was between 1.5 million to 7 million. They were multiplying, remember? So to that, the skills to manage that amount of people were incredibly different than people who just dedicated 350 years to tend their sheep and build bricks. Or make bricks. But Moses was a man that God had chosen to do the job. So now Moses, understanding his responsibility, he's walking one day in the construction site. He's going to see what his grandfather is building. And as he's walking by, he finds that a an Egyptian. Foreman is abusing one of the Hebrew workers. And Moses steps in. I'm pretty sure that everyone knew who Moses was. He dressed differently. He most likely was not wearing construction work uh, attire. Moses looked royal. And as he comes in, there was an argument with this foreman. But this foreman did not. To Moses. Now Moses took matters in his own hands and kills Egyptian. We don't know how many people looked. We don't know how many people were watching. We don't know if this Hebrew told the story. Guess what happened? Maybe after that event, that Hebrew posted it on Facebook. I don't know. With a picture, of Moses selfie. But we know one thing, that that event was not a secret. Moses killed the Egyptian, buries the body, hides him, and goes about his day. And another day, the Bible tells us, he comes back by the, by, by the work site. And there, now there are two Hebrews fighting. And he says, hey, brothers, Chill. And one of them responds to Moses, verse 14, Exodus 2. He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Now, was he a prince? Was he, was he given the authority to make decisions? Yeah. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoa. He probably liked the pose that the other Hebrew put up. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Moses was what? Afraid. Afraid. And as we've been talking about, fear is the reaction to not understanding who God is and our place before God. And Moses knew that he had messed up. See, one thing, one thing is to do God's will. Another completely different thing is to do God's will in His own time and in His own way. Two different things. Moses wanted to do God's will, but he wanted to do it His own way. And aren't we just like that? And it just baffles me oftentimes that we get together, and and even in church, we, we pray for a ministry after a meeting, and then we say, oh, God, bless our plans. When the reality is that the prayers that will bless our plans, that will give us the right plans, need to happen before that meeting, not after. That's why we we doubt. That's why our faith lacks. That's why we fear. But see, in spite of our mistakes, God is always willing to give us a do-over. His grace is so great that even when we make mistakes, God is always providing a do-over. Somebody has to say amen. Because without those do-overs, we would have no hope. Because we all make mistakes. We all mess up. We all commit sins. And without God's grace and giving us those do-overs, we had no chance. No chance to happiness. No chance for anything beyond our misery of today, observing the, 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 the results of our mistakes. For Moses thinking after he was found out, his days as liberator were over. They were over so much that his next action is to leave, to escape, to leave Egypt. And isn't that exactly what we do? When we fear, we flee. We escape we escape. We try to hide. That is exactly what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, after they ate from the tree that they were not supposed to, God is coming looking for them. Isn't that cool? They were not looking for God. God came looking for them. And the question from God was, Adam, where are you? Now, family, I know you're intelligent. I know you know your Bible. Let me ask you, did God know where Adam was? He did Why did He ask him? Because, see, God always is giving us a chance for a do-over. But the do-over will never happen unless I accept it. So God is asking uh, Adam, Adam, where are you? And the response from Adam was, well, we feared and we hid from you. But even when we hide, God comes looking for us. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry to rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, And with Jacob. Even though Moses made a mistake, God never forgot that he had given a promise. I want to show you a picture of one of my former schools. This is my junior high in Mexico City. And Alex went there and Mario went there. And a bunch of my uncles went there. And this school had about six to seven hundred students. The patio, that area that you see the students walking on, is a little bigger, wider than a basketball court. And it happened that, it happens today still, that every Monday... All the students are gathered early in the morning around that court, that patio, to do the Pledge of Allegiance and sing the National Anthem. Of course, the Mexican one. And and what they did is that they set up all the classrooms, all the classes. There were three grades, seven, eight, and nine, and uh, there were four groups of each one. So so 12, groups of between 30 and 40 students and and they would set us up in, in a block around the square of the patio about seven students deep from the tallest in the back to the shortest in the front. In my class when that ceremony took place on that particular Monday when I was in seventh grade I was the second to the last in the back. I was one of the tallest in that row. In the middle of the national anthem, I feel somebody push me from behind. And what I did, your natural instinct, your, national rea- your natural reaction is to put your hands forward. And the guy in front of me is a little bit shorter than me, so he felt my hands on his back. And he did exactly the same thing to the guy in front of him. And so forth and so on. Until the smallest guy who was in the front field, the, felt the guy behind him pushing him into the middle of the square. You see the second story there, right on top of the basketball, the, the, the basket, basketball board, backboard, backboard, that's the name, the backboard. Right there, I don't play basketball, you can tell. Uh, right there, from there, the... the The principal of the school would lead the proceedings. And and the next thing that she sees is this little kid flying to the middle of the plaza. Right away, teachers, assistants were sent to figure out what happened. Well, obviously, the little kid in the front said, I got pushed. So they took him and the kid behind him to the principal's office. We were about the second period when one of the assistants comes into the room and calls three names. And the third name, you guessed it, Rogelio Pacchini. So there I go to the principal's office. When I get there to the principal's office, the other two guys are just pale with fear because their parents were already in the principal's office. It didn't take long while well, I was waiting there that coming up the stairs, my dad is coming up the stairs. In my family, it kind of worked like this. If you don't stop, I'm going to tell your dad when he comes. So when my dad came up the stairs, I knew I was in trouble. The principal's office was was an, it was an interesting kind of office because the desk was right in front, but you could not see from the windows what was going on inside. All you could see was paint on the bottom. But then when my dad went in the office to speak to the principal, I was looking at what at the dynamics that were occurring with the other parents and their kids, and this is what happened every time. Let's go. Let's go. In my mind, the only question was, am I going to get whacked with the right or with the left? My dad was the last one to go into the principal's office. Every conversation took about five minutes. My dad was there for what it seemed to be two hours. And all I could see was hands above the painted area moving like this. Finally, the door opened. And I knew my doom was near. My dad stepped out of the office. The principal was mad. My dad was mad. And he said, son, let's go. I grabbed my stuff and I began to walk kind of waiting to soften the blow. The next thing that I felt was not a slap on the head, on the back of the head. It was his arm around my shoulder. And he said, son, let's go home. For two weeks, I was not able to go to school. I was suspended. Later, I found out that the principal wanted to expel me. But my dad and his skills managed to deal a a two-week suspension. You do understand that I was given a do-over. I think that when we make mistakes, we have a Father who is always interceding for us, who is always arguing for us who is always fighting in our behalf so that we can feel his arm, especially in the moments when we need him the most. And he comes out of that negotiation to say, I took care of everything. I took care of everything. Let's go home. Let's go home. And family, if there's something that we need today, is the loving arm of our Father telling us, Here, let's start again, but this time, let's walk together.